0: Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at Schwepp.net, episode 75, The Chaldean Oracles. In our coverage of the Middle Platonists of the second century so far, we've been in a fairly happy-go-lucky realm of thought. Reality is a bright, positive place, at least for a well-off, sophisticated philosopher, It can be understood with the unaided power of educated philosophical reflection and the higher faculty of noesis. Things are looking good in the Roman Empire at its height and the Platonist philosophers we've been looking at, Plutarch, Apuleius, and so forth, are fairly positive. With this next group of episodes, we remain roughly situated in the second century, but take leave of that genteel world for a different sort of Platonism. This is the Platonism of Numenius, of Cronius, of Celsus, all second century philosophers who posited a very different lineage of truth to Plutarch or Apuleius, and whose work partakes more of, well, the esoteric. We might even say the occult, despite the danger of anachronism, because the term occult Generally speaking, in the historical study of Western esotericism applies to the 19th century and later, when people started calling themselves occultists. Nevertheless, as we shall see, this is sort of an occult literature, in a way. But before we address this more highly esoteric current of Middle Platonism in the philosophical school, we should address the most striking document of Platonistic religion, arising in the second century. I refer, of course, to the Chaldean oracles. The late Platonists Porphyry, Iamblichus Proclus, and Damascius, not to mention the medieval East Roman esotericist Michael Pselos, or the later neo-pagan philosopher Georgios Gemistos Plithon, or the 19th century occultist Wynne Westcott, all of these people are accustomed to quote from time to time the strange doctrines of what they call the oracles, or the teachings of the Chaldeans. These oracles no longer exist as a whole work, so we can reconstruct them only from the writings of these later authors who quote a few lines here and there. So these oracles, they are he- hexameter versus the traditional form of Greek oracular revelation, and of canonical texts like Homer and the Orphic poems. They teach an elaborate Platonistic metaphysics involving numerous complex interlocking layers of reality, the highest of which are truly ineffable. And in good Platonist fashion, all of these layers are in some way alive their conscious, their gods and daimones and many other colorful beings, which we shall encounter in the course of this episode. Of course, our late Platonist sources who quote the oracles do not call these metaphysics Platonist. They consider them the words of the gods themselves. So this is a revealed text, which has led to scholars calling the oracles, with only a bit of irony, the Bible of Neoplatonism. They teach a practice or series of practices called theurgy, that is God work or divine craft or something like that. Ritual practices aimed at purifying the soul of the practitioner and allowing it to ascend to the presence of the higher gods and notably to the sun and attain to immortality. We'll talk about what this might mean in the next episode, since the Platonist soul is already supposed to be immortal, right? So it seems a bit strange that it would have to seek out immortalization. And they teach a number of more spooky ritual effects as well, such as summoning supernatural powers into human hosts and then dismissing them, which is perhaps meant to be something like active ritualized divine possession we'll come back to that too, and animating statues, and perhaps summoning up the souls of the dead and making them into one's allies. This practice of theurgy, if indeed all of these ritual practices are to be included as part of theurgy in the oracles, which is not entirely clear, the practice of theurgy went on to become the go-to religious practice of late Platonists interested in integrating ritual into their philosophic quest for ascent and for face to face meetings with the gods. And we're going to get right into it in the next episode. But in this episode, we will introduce and try to summarize the most important aspects of the Chaldean oracles, one of the most fascinating religious documents from antiquity and one with enormous importance for the development of Western esotericism. We need to talk about a number of things, the origins, of the oracles, who wrote them, that sort of thing, what kind of text we're dealing with, and the belief system or worldview outlined in the text. We also need to discuss the practices outlined in the text, of course, but as we mentioned already, the practical side of the oracles is so interesting and requires so much interpretation that we're going to just go ahead and devote an entire episode to it. Lovers of programmatic altered states of consciousness and ritual magic, you're welcome. Let's start, as usual, with the nature of the text itself. The Chaldean oracles first appear in the historical record in the late 3rd century, cited in the works of Porphyry of Tyre, the great late Platonist philosopher and student of Plotinus, whom we shall, of course, be discussing in the podcast. Porphyry wrote a lost work entitled philosophy from oracles which almost everyone agrees must have been a work interpreting oracular responses and doubtless doing so in terms of late platonist philosophic content there's a theory out there that the de regress animae on the return of the soul of porphyry which is extant, is actually the same work as the philosophy from oracles in which case it isn't lost but anyway most people think these are two separate works. Now, this gives us a hard late third century date for the oracles. That's our terminus antequem for lovers of Latin tags, which aren't strictly necessary. But the works of the second century philosopher Numenius of Apamea, whom we shall be meeting very soon in the podcast, in fact, we shall be discussing him almost immediately after we discuss the oracles because the two go hand in hand, His works are clearly either influenced by the oracles or are themselves an influence on the oracles. But either way, the association between the thought of Numenius and the thought that we find in the oracles is so strong that scholars have been tempted to date the oracles to some time in the second century, which is a pretty strong consensus, although there's no real hard proof of it. Because Numenius, for example, never says, as it says in the oracles, or something like that. We also have some testimony from Proclus, writing in the 5th century, that the oracles were produced under Marcus Aurelius. So, so again, 2nd century. And later material from the medieval period, which is probably based on Proclus, gives the same dating. It's been suggested that there's evidence of Manichaean influence on the oracles, which would put them later, right before Porphyry, because the first Manichaean missions didn't arrive in the Greek-speaking world until the early 3rd century, or early to mid 3rd century, but this Manichaean connection is not that obvious or strong, though it's perfectly plausible, of course, because we can certainly say that the oracles are drawing on influences from all over the place. Others have seen the influence of Jewish angelology on the oracles, which again is perfectly plausible, but of course loads of, quote, magical writings in our period show this influence. As we'll see when we discuss the Greek magical papyri, there's lots of Jewish angelology in these magical documents, sometimes pseudo-Jewish angelology. And since, as we shall see, the oracles have a lot in common with contemporary quote magical writings, this needn't show any direct Jewish influence per se, but certainly shows a vocabulary in some ways drawing on magical traditions more on this anon. Now, the oracles are written in old school hexameter verses, but they really constitute a new genre. The oracular theological ritual manual, something we don't see in earlier Greek literature. So this is nothing like the traditional oracles that the gods used to give back in the day. We can't rule out that other similar works might have been in circulation, but we certainly don't have anything like the oracles. Though we do have other, quote, theological oracles from the Roman period, that, you know, the gods telling humans about themselves. But the oracles are really unique as far as the surviving record goes. Now, almost everything we know about the circumstances around the oracles comes from the very late East Roman encyclopedia called the Suda which dates to the 10th century. In the Suda, we find two men called Julian. Julian the Chaldean, the father, and Julian the Theurge, the son. So let's see what this encyclopedia tells us about them. Entry 433, Julian, Chaldean, philosopher, father of the so-called Theurge Julian. He wrote four books on daimones. There is a protective amulet for each part of the human body, such as the Chaldean Telesiurgica. So we'll come back to this word. Telesiurgica. Then we have the next entry, number 434. Julian, son of the aforementioned, lived under King Marcus Antoninus. So the Greeks didn't have a separate word for emperor, so Roman emperors are called kings in Greek, um, just following on from the practice in the Hellenistic kingdoms, and Marcus Antoninus is the same guy as Marcus Aurelius, as he better known today. So continuing with our quote, he himself wrote theurgic works, telestic works, oracles in hexameter verse, and other recondite works, such as fall under this field of knowledge. They say that once, when the Romans were suffering from thirst, he suddenly made and summoned up dark clouds and heavy rain, along with thunder and repeated lightning. And they say that Julian did this through certain wisdom. Others say that Arnufus, the Egyptian philosopher, did this. So putting these late testimonies together with various other scraps of information, we have a father. This is Julian the Chaldean, who wrote about Daimones and amulets. The wonderful word teleziorgica I think must mean something along the lines of amulets or maybe in sold statues. But I will argue my case for that in the following episode. On the face of it, it has something to do with initiations, but it's hard to say more than that. It's usually translated as something to do with ritual, but I think it might be referring to items. Anyway, we also have a son, Julian the Theurge, who wrote on Theurgy, animation of statues, and he wrote some oracles, as well as having made it rain in a spectacular fashion through his secret knowledge. Interestingly, getting back to the mention we made earlier of the occult, our encyclopedic author is grouping together Theurgy, Telestic Ritual, and the Chaldean oracles, for it is they, under this single heading, which he calls cryphia, which we've translated as recondite, but it really means something not far from occult. So this is ancient literature on hidden knowledge, the sort of wisdom which allows people to summon up thunderstorms at will. It's all being discussed as an episteme, as a kind of field of study or knowledge, and this is the sort of thing that Julian the Theurge was known for. Now, There have been many theories advanced as to how one composed Logia di Epon, oracles in verse, with E.R. Dodds famously having suggested that the oracles came to Julian Fies as some kind of transmediumistic dictation. It may be so. We will discuss this further in the following episode in the context of the practice of Systasis discussed in the oracles, as well as in much magical literature, in which discussion it will emerge that the oracles may have even been dictated to Julian by the soul of Plato himself. Now, if we only had these pseudo-entries, we might think they were just a late invention, um, and the Giuliani never really existed. But our classical sources, like Proclus, give us just enough kind of scraps of evidence to make scholars think that these Juliani probably did exist. Whether they should be associated with Chaldea is another matter. Julian the Chaldean could just as likely mean Julian the astrologer. As we've discussed, the term Chaldean is a normal way of referring to an astrologer in the Greco-Roman world, and with good reason, because the Babylonians, stroke Chaldeans. These Near Eastern people actually sort of invented astrology as we saw in earlier episodes. So it could just likely mean Julian the astrologer as Julian the guy from the ethnic group the Chaldeans. But it doesn't really matter. In any case, there's nothing in the surviving oracle fragments which points toward even a notional origin in Chaldea in the Near East. We call them the Chaldean oracles because people started calling them that based on this Julian the Chaldean Business, presumably, unless they were calling them the oracles of Zoroaster, which they sometimes were, but that is a story for another episode. Now, these oracles were picked up enthusiastically by the late Platonists, as we've mentioned. This was sacred, revealed scripture. You can call it scripture, I think. But Plotinus, the so called founder of Neoplatonism, our first late Platonist, Plotinus never references the oracles. Although many scholars have kind of applied a microscope to the Enneads of Plotinus and found this or that turn of phrase which reminds them of the oracles, it's it's a bit like with Philo. There's a lot of in Plotinus which reminds us of Philo of Alexandria, but we haven't really got any evidence that's convincing that he read or even knew of Philo's works. I mean, this is... Platonism, and you're bound to find a lot of similarities and commonalities in works of Platonism. But Porphyry, the student of Plotinus, was really into the oracles. Porphyry was not, however, an uncritical partisan of the ritual practices of theurgy, or at least the way theurgy was practiced in his time, which might have developed considerably further from what the oracles describe. When we get to the great theurgy debate between Porphyry and Iamblichus, which incidentally will give us our second great philosophical reimagining of magic from antiquity, the first being Apuleius's Apology, which we discussed last time. When we get to this, we will get into the details of Porphyry's position on theurgy. But Iamblichus really dug the Chaldean oracles and theurgy aside from his heartfelt devotion to theurgy as a theoretical and practical necessity for Platonist philosophers, which we find in his surviving works, especially the *De Mysteriis Egyptiorum, we know that he wrote a lost commentary on the oracle. So he was very busy with these texts. So did Proclus, also a great lover of theurgy. The oracle's influence was thus felt later through the works of these authors. Proclus in particular was an immensely influential author throughout the Eastern and Western Middle Ages. But we also find Chaldean-inspired notions in earlier Christian writers, like the 3rd century Arnobius of Sicca, the 4th century Marius of Victorinus, and the 5th century Synesius of Cyrene, all of whom were Christian intellectuals of a very Platonizing bent, in their understanding of Christianity, and they read the Chaldean oracles and found a lot of value in them. So the reputation of these oracles as genuine oracles, as genuine revealed literature, or at least of literature of of philosophic value, extended beyond the narrow sort of intellectual elite of the late Platonists. And of course, the great pseudo-Dionysius, transmitter of so much that is Proclan into Christianity, and kind of the inventor of the vocabulary of Christian mysticism. Pseudo-Dionysius is full of Chaldean theological ideas mediated by Proclus. So we don't even need to say he read the oracles. He probably didn't read the oracles. But he read Proclus and in fact, pretty much just ripped off Proclus and thus imbibed the metaphysics of the oracles. The influence of the Chaldean oracles goes on from there. Indeed, if we wanted to discuss the afterlife of this text in Western esotericism, we would need a number of episodes just for that. So we're going to let that unfold in the course of the podcast. But for now, now that we have some idea of the origins of the text, in the second century, or possibly the third, and in, to quote Levy whose book, The Chaldean Oracles and Theurgy, was a groundbreaking study. Quote, a Middle Platonic milieu, especially that type of Middle Platonism which had affinities with both Gnosticism and Hermeticism. In other words, what John Dillon calls the underworld of Platonism. With the oracles, philosophers of the later type of Platonism, generally known as Neoplatonism, found something like a revealed scripture, bringing with it a whole religious practice. So what was in the oracles which they found so compelling? Let's get into the, do we want to call it metaphysics? Do we want to call it mythology? It's a curious blend of both genres. And here is where the obvious parallels with many so-called Gnostic texts are immediately obvious. The worldview of the oracles describes an intricate chain of being beginning with an ineffable first principle stroke, supreme God, and ending down here on Earth in the material cosmos, but with the whole universe in between populated by immaterial emanations and divine powers of various types, which one minute remind us of Numenius' metaphysical nous, and the next of the archonic emanations from Gnostic texts like the Apocryphon of John. Now, Levy, whom we just mentioned, probably went further than anyone else in attempting to reconstruct the mythic, metaphysical worldview of the Chaldean oracles into a tidy system. Indeed, he probably went too far, because it's really difficult sometimes to tell what is meant to be going on in the oracles, especially in the fragmentary state we find them in. Remember, this isn't philosophy, as a genre. It is intentionally mysterious poetry with metaphysical content. Very different uh, rules of interpretation apply to this than, say, apply to someone like even Numenius. Every entity in the Chaldean oracles has about 10 different names, and some, sometimes you don't know, you know, is the fiery heaven the same thing as the noetic world? You know, this sort of question arises a lot. Entities often do double duty or even quadruple duty. In the case of Hecate, who is quadruple at the minimum. Uh, There are a number of divine intellects or noes, nooses. And it's very often unclear which one is being referred to in a given instance. The supreme god may or may not be a noose, an intellect, but probably he is at least noetic. We'll return to that in a minute. It's all very weird and wonderful. So let's dive into the oracles and see what we find. We won't be able to cover anything like all of the Chaldean universe, but we'll try to hit some key points. Starting with the first principle, it's a very good place to start. The first principle or highest God is the Father the Great Father, the All-Father. He's known by many names. The Chaldean Oracles have a very strong stoicizing love of fire. And so the Father is sometimes described as being made of some kind of ultimate fire. He dwells beyond the sphere of the fixed stars in a realm of pure fire. The Father may be androgynous. At any rate, he has a creative power and is described as having wombs, now, this highest god's action, this creative action through these kolpoi, creates the world of forms, which is then the blueprint upon which the second primary divine noose, the demiurgic noose, will base the creation of the material cosmos. So, think Plato's Timaeus myth, but with an additional primordial figure added at the top to account for the existence of the forms, which in Plato's account are just sort of there lying around waiting for the demiurge to get busy, but in this Middle Platonist take on things, they themselves have an origin in the father. But this father is also called bythos, the abyss or the depths, and he's described as the ineffable father. Or maybe this means the secret father, depending on how we want to translate Arretos Pater. More on this question in our upcoming episode on the question of transcendence in Middle Platonism. Now, is this secret or ineffable father a noose? This is the question. We tend never to translate the term noose in this podcast because there is no English word which does it justice. But something like divine mind might be the best option if you were forced to translate some people say consciousness Um, the fact is in our sources people these middle platonists and, and later platonists are very concerned to outline nous as a faculty as a mode of consciousness and it's really really nothing like thinking in the everyday sense so we tend to leave it nous noetic and so forth untranslated now Later Platonists, Plotinus and pretty much everyone after him will say no, the first principle cannot be a nous, it must be something yet more unified and transcendent than a nous. But for middle Platonism, the standard position, we've seen it in Philo to Plutarch to Apuleius, well actually we didn't discuss Apuleius's first principle, but it is indeed a divine mens, which is Apuleius's Latin take on the Greek word nous. And we shall also see it in Numenius. This is the standard position that the supreme god is a noose. Now, the bythos in the oracles is totally transcendent and ineffable, but Numenius' first noose, or Philo's Hebrew god for that matter, are also totally transcendent and still describable as a noose. So it gets complicated. Check out this oracular fragment, number one in the edition of the Chaldean oracles by Diplas and We're using the translation of Ruth Majersik. For there exists a certain intelligible, that's Ti Noeton, which you must perceive by the flower of mind. Again, noose. But if you should incline your mind toward it and perceive it as perceiving a specific thing, you would not perceive it. For it is the power of strength, visible all around, flashing, with intellectual divisions. Therefore, you must not perceive that intelligible violently, but with the flame of mind completely extended, which measures all things, except that intelligible. You must not perceive it intently, but keeping the pure eye of your soul turned away. You should extend an empty mind toward the intelligible, in order to comprehend it, since it exists outside." End of quote. So, if you didn't follow all that, go back and listen to it again, uh, I suggest, because there's some really interesting method being described here, a method of how consciousness can comprehend this certain mysterious intelligible, and it's not through thinking. It's not through analysis. It's not through anything in the normal way of mental function. What's being described here is some kind of special state of consciousness which can grasp the transcendent. So, mind in our translation here is nous in the original, and a certain intelligible, the thing we're trying to grasp is tinoiton, something noetic. Now, Whatever this noetic thing is, it cannot be grasped with normal consciousness, not even with nous, but with the flower of nous. What seems to be going on here is a principle beyond nous, or maybe quasi-nous since it is noetic, which cannot be grasped except through a very special form of consciousness, attained through a kind of mental emptiness. We're clearly looking at some form of meditation tradition here for want of a better term. Of the kind familiar from the Buddhist tradition, the kind that's that's very attentive to the actual processes of consciousness that go on when you meditate but it's hard to say what kinds of practices may have been involved how formulaic they were etc can we say that the Chaldeans had a meditation practice in a kind of ritualized form it's difficult to say and all of this is assuming that the T noeton of this passage the certain intelligible, is the same thing as the father. It might not be, though I suspect it is. Moving on, down the chain of being, ontologically below the father we find the first intelligible or noetic, monad, which is a triad, <laughs> uh, made up of dynamis, patricos nous, and boule, or power, the paternal noose, and will. So it may be that the, the father is a noeton, he's a kind of n- intelligible noetic being of some kind, but that he doesn't actually ha- exist as a noose. However, his first big emanation, the noetic monad, is a noose or contains a noose. So this threefold monad is the first emanation of the father. That's pretty much certain. And we'll return to the dunamis, In a minute in the context of Hecate. As for the paternal noose, this is not the demiurgic noose. Not yet. The demiurgic or second noose is not to be confused with the paternal intellect that we've just been discussing. This later god is the one who makes the cosmos based on the forms present in the noetic world which may or may not be contained in the dunamis of the Paternal Triad. Levy thinks it is, I'm not so sure. So it may be that that dunamis in that monad triad is the world of forms. Now, where does this second intellect fall into the scheme of things? Most usual would be to have this noose mediating between the Paternal Monad and the world soul. But there is some ambivalence in the oracles. At any rate, this noose the second noose, the demiurgic noose, depends on the first intellect and fashions the cosmos. And incidentally here, for people who are totally lost in all this um, kind of metaphysics, if you have not yet listened to our episode on Plato's Timaeus, I highly recommend you go do it, because that myth is absolutely foundational for this myth from the chaldean oracles this mythic understanding of the genesis of reality but also for the uh, cognate myths we're going to be looking at in the hermetica and in Gnostic texts the Timaeus account really really was the key building block upon which all these kinds of uh, theories of reality were made. Now below the demiurgic noose we have the world soul again Timaeus And this marks the end of the noetic or Empyrean realm. Then, below the world soul, or next in order of emanation, Levi puts the Aeon, a god associated with time or eternity. Now, there are actually a whole plethora of time gods alluded to in the oracles. Associated, I think it's safe to say, with astral cycles, since these in the Timaeus and all the kind of thought world inspired by the Timaeus are actually the generators of time. So the stars and planets actually sort of make time. It's also safe to say that the Ion exists within the cosmos. That is, he's sort of up there in the stars, or maybe is made of the stars or something like that. But anyway, last but not least, we have the material realm Here below the moon. This in the oracles is full of daimones, both good and evil. The evil daimones want to keep humans trapped down here in the material realm, but there are also good daimones who want to help us to ascend. We'll get to ascent in a minute. So we mortals have a kind of evil diabolical enemy here on earth in the form of evil daimones, which are described as bestial and kind of uh, shameless, and they're also described as dogs. So, we saw evil daimones in Plutarch, but these Chaldean daimones are a lot more kind of seriously evil than the Plutarchian daimones, um, who are really more venal than truly malicious. These guys are like proper, what we would think of as demons in a way. So, let's back up and try to give some structure to this. Confusing account if we want to think of this schema as we've laid it out so far in terms of concentric circles We will have three realms the outermost the Empyrean or possibly the noetic Then inside of that circle we have the etheric and then inside of that we have the material at the center So the material realm is like a circle in the middle surrounded by a ring Which is the etheric realm surrounded by a ring, which is the Empyrean realm the Empyrean realm is noetic and immaterial. okay, it's, it's not actually immaterial in the oracles. It's made of super subtle pure fire, but it's functionally immaterial. This is where we find the father, or rather, we don't find him because he is hidden. But we find his first monad of power, noose and will. And probably the demiurgic noose also dwells in this realm sort of at the bottom of the chain of emanations, and he will be the one who mediates between the empyrean and the etheric. The etheric realm, where we find the stars and planets, this is probably where the world soul exists um, up there in the sphere of the fixed stars, which is the border between the empyrean and the ethereal. And within the ethereal is also where we will find the ion and the other time deities who are very, very interesting. And below this, here, on earth, below the moon, lies the material realm where we live and where the Daimones are constantly swimming around. Now, this is a little bit complicated, but we've actually left a load of stuff out. First of all, the goddess Hecate is really important in the oracles, and she can be associated with a number of different realities in the scheme we've just outlined. We'll have more on this fascinating goddess in a special episode because the stuff is just too cool to skip over. But for now, we'll say that Hecate provides a kind of female principle at many levels of the Chaldean universe, often in a role as a mediatrix between male principles. She's called Hecate, begotten of the Father, um, and in this form, I think she's associated with the dunamis of the paternal monad. So dynamis is grammatically feminine in Greek as is boule actually will. So the paternal monad, this first emanation of the unknown father into something that we can kind of know about, is made up of nous and dynamis which may be the world of forms and is hecate and the will of the father which is sort of in in accord with the nous. And the dynamis may mediate between the father and his noose. There's some suggestion in Levy and elsewhere that she might be the kind of glue that sticks the ineffable father together with his first kind of intellect. She is associated also with nature. So think of Venus in Apollaeus' Cupid and Psyche or Isis in the Metamorphoses. So the kind of principle of life and growth within the material cosmos that is Hecate and she's associated with the moon and in this form she seems to be a bit more of a dark and scary Hecate. She also seems to be the mistress of the evil Daimones and their description as dogs that we alluded to earlier may mean that they're really to be associated with the traditional dogs of Hecate, for this was her main totemic animal. So we may be dealing with a number of different Hecates, a single goddess with numerous manifestations at all levels of reality or something else entirely. But what's fascinating, aside from the goddess herself, who is surely one of the most fascinating goddesses in the Greek thought world, a kind of goddess of the liminal, how cool is that? What's fascinating about her, for our purposes, is that we see here a feminine divine principle. We saw in Philo um, a hypostasized Sophia, a figure of God's wisdom as a kind of female, quasi-personified divine figure, acting as a quasi-principle of reality. And of course, we've seen in Apuleius that he's very into his goddess of nature. But what we shall see going forward in time is that this feminine counterpart to or emanation from the Supreme Principle, and the Supreme Principle, as we'll see in our many Platonizing religious sources, can be masculine, can be neuter or androgynous, depending on the text we're looking at, this female figure will become a major player in Platonistic religious currents of late antiquity from the early Gnostics onward. Also interesting, with parallels with the Sethian Sophia, is the ambivalent status of Hecate. As the dunamis of the paternal monad, and as being you know, generated by the father as one of her epithets, she's obviously a divinity of great and primordial goodness and power, originally at least. But then she's also the mistress of these evil daimones and of the moon. So something's going on here. Welcome, Hecate, and we look forward to exploring your role in the Chaldean Oracles in a special episode devoted to your awesomeness. Now, the other thing that we've left out from our scheme of reality is, well, a whole load of other entities which make the Chaldean cosmos into a crowded metropolis. These include... The time gods, the various different gods associated with weeks and years and things like that. And also the yunges, the Sunoges, and the Teletarchai, and others. These are really interesting and really mysterious for the most part. A Junx is a kind of bird called the Rhynak in English. But as we discussed in episode 6 with Daniel Ogden... There was also a ritual implement called a yonks, which was probably a ceramic kind of ring with little bird sculptures stuck on it. You can see an image of one in that episode's notes. The only yonks so far recovered by archaeology, or maybe it's a model of a yunks, we're not sure. But anyway, this thing, the yonks, is something that is spun around by ritual practitioners who are doing things like summoning up the souls of the dead. It's a magical tool of some kind. But the Chaldean Yonks is some kind of cosmic mediating entity as well as being something that the Theurge spins around. Though now, according to Celus, citing Proclus, so this is very, very late testimony, now the Junx is a golden ball with a gemstone stuck on it spun around on a rope. Um, we really don't know what's going on here, but we'll talk more about it in the next episode. The teletarchai, the teletarchs, whose name means something like either kind of lords of perfection or lords of initiation, or the, the, maybe it means something like the completers or the initiators. These guys have some role in theurgic ascent. The synoches, the connectors, are again some kind of higher beings with a role to play in ritual ascent practices and in metaphysical reality. Presumably they connect this reality with that reality or maybe their function is to connect gods with humans and we'll come back to that so The Chaldean cosmos is even more heavily populated than the normal Middle Platonist one that we're familiar with And that one was already teeming with daimones and human souls going up and down all the time We are now in a very elaborate if only partly understood system of cosmic and hypercosmic entities, many of which can either help or hinder the ascent of the human soul. Speaking of the ascent of the human soul, now that we have sketched a bit of an outline of the celestial and hyper-celestial terrain, we should get into the really fascinating subject of how the human being is to traverse that terrain. It definitely involves meditations or contemplations of some kind, it definitely involves rituals of some kind, it may involve meditation rituals. Join us next time as we discuss theurgy and associated practices outlined in the Chaldean Oracles. Statues will be animated, souls freed from their bodies, and there will be a cameo appearance by Plato. I mean, the soul of Plato. Plato himself. In the meantime, stay esoteric.